If you could take out your Bibles, stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word, which comes from the book of Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again this morning before we begin. Lord, we pray that you would bless your eternal word to us, your people, this morning. We pray that you would help us to see more of the hope that is ours in Christ the great inheritance that we have with all the saints, and that our hearts would be encouraged this morning. I pray that we'd be encouraged also to live a life of faith and love as you have called us to, and that you would use this text before us this morning to sanctify us further in your truth. We thank you for your word, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be at work here among us this morning as your word goes forth. Please take away any competing distractions and help us to set focus on what is before us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Our regular preaching pastor, John, is away this weekend getting some much-needed rest and refreshment. So regardless of who's preaching here at Pacific Hope Church, our focus is always the same. It's to exalt the Word of God and to lift high the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we'll do again here this morning. And the only difference being that we might be done 10 or 15 minutes earlier than typical. We're going to take a break this morning from our regular study in the book of Acts, and we're going to turn our attention to one of the early churches that was in the city of Colossae. The Colossian church was established during the time of the book of Acts, so hopefully our study this morning will prove insightful for us as we continue down the path in Acts. I'd like to begin with a question for us to think about this morning. You don't need to answer this question out loud, but I want you to be thinking about it as we go about our sermon this morning. The question is, if someone asked you to sum up what a healthy church is in just one sentence, what would you say? At a fundamental level, what are the essential components that make up a healthy and God-glorifying church? Paul eloquently answers this question for us here in Colossians chapter 1 as he gives thanks for this healthy church that he's writing to. Paul's answer to the question is simply that a healthy church is one with a foundation of hope in Christ that produces faith in him and has lived out in a love for all the saints. Faith, hope, and love. That's basic apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. And where there is genuine Christianity, there will be a healthy church. Although the church at Colossae was healthy, it wasn't without its challenges. And the letter that we have here before us was written to the Colossians to combat false teaching that has made its way into this church. 
And Paul was writing to encourage them to press on toward full maturity in Christ. Now, before we dig into the text itself this morning, it's important for us to understand the context and the bigger picture of the letter that was written to the Colossians. So first, we're going to start with a bit of background on the city of Colossae, as well as the nature and purpose of this letter that was written to them. The city of Colossae was located in the region of Phrygia, which was a Roman province of Asia Minor. It was situated within the Lycus River Valley and was roughly 100 miles east of the biblical city of Ephesus, and it was closest in proximity to two other cities called Laodicea and Hierapolis. You're probably familiar with those from your Bible as well. These cities were all located in what is now the modern-day country of Turkey. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul, as indicated in chapter 1, verse 1, and it's likely that Paul wrote this letter around AD 62 during the first of his two imprisonments in Rome about the same time as the letter to the Ephesians and to Philemon. One thing very interesting to note about the Colossian church is that it's highly likely that Paul never met these Colossian believers face to face. He didn't personally establish this church at Colossae, but rather it was a man named Epaphras who brought the gospel to this city. On one of Paul's missionary trips while he ministered and evangelized in, in Ephesus, we read in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10 that Paul continued preaching there for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All the residents in focus here surely included those in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Laodicea, in Hierapolis. It's likely that Epaphras heard Paul proclaiming the word of the truth in, in Ephesus, and after hearing the word and being converted himself, he took that message to his home city of Colossae, as well as the other cities within the Lycus Valley. This is confirmed for us in Colossians 1.7, where it reads that the church had learned the gospel, verse 7 says, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. This is further confirmed in chapter 2 and verse 1, where the apostle says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Colossians, and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Although Paul had never seen the Colossians in person, we'll see in our text today that he had a pastor's heart of ardent love and deep concern for this church. He cared for it just as much as any church he had established himself in person. With that background in mind, and before we get to an exposition of the text in front of us, we're going to review briefly next the purpose and a general overview of the letter, this great letter of the Colossians, to help situate ourselves as we move into chapter 1. To get this overview, we're going to jump around just a little bit in Colossians, so if you have your Bible with you, have it open and be ready to turn some pages with me. Now, overall... The book of Colossians is one of the most Christ-centered, Christ-exalting books that we can find anywhere in the entire Bible. Now, obviously, all Scripture speaks to the glories of our Savior, but Colossians uniquely cuts to the chase, declaring the riches and the glories that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look with me first at chapter 1 and verse 15. We read of Christ that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul's concern here is to emphasize Christ as preeminent, the foremost of all things that may ever consume our thoughts or our attention. All things were created through him and for him, and there's nothing that exists apart from him or outside of his sovereign rule. He is the very fullness of God in the flesh, the perfect image bearer of the invisible God, and the one through whom all things will ultimately be reconciled. Turn to chapter 2 now and look at verse 3. We read that it is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then continue down in chapter 2 and verse 9. For in him, speaking of Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, we're drawn to see that Christ is the fullness of deity, and he is to be exalted and is, in fact, exalted above all things on earth or in heaven. Finally, look at chapter 3 in verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God that's in glory. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. Beloved, Paul's desire in this letter is to draw our eyes and our hearts to the glories of Christ. And may we hear and heed that instruction this morning. A second great focus of the book of Colossians is on reconciliation and redemption. The reconciliation of sinners only through the perfect, finished work of Christ our Savior. Back up again to chapter 1 and look at verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13 reads, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It is Christ and in him alone that we find redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and therefore, peace with God. Look down at verse 21 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 21, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciliation, peace with God, made possible only by the blood of his cross. Look again in chapter 2, in verse 13, we see it again. Verse 13 says, In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The themes of reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, they should jump from these pages and into our hearts as we read the book of Colossians. So we see the main themes of the exaltation of Christ, then reconciliation and redemption. But there is one more message that's woven in the fabric of this book to the Colossians. 
It is, in fact, a warning, a censure of false teaching that had reared its ugly head within this church. Epaphras had brought news of the church to Paul in Rome, and from the letter he sent back to the church, we can see that there was some measure of false teaching that had made its way into this church. Now, the exact nature of this false, false teaching within the church isn't entirely clear. Now, when we look at an epistle in Scripture, which is just a letter, we don't have the benefit of hearing the conversation or the letter that instigated this particular response. It's similar to hearing one side of a phone conversation. If you're listening to someone talk on the phone, you may not be able to hear what the person on the other end is saying, but you may be able to infer from the tone and from the words responded with what the nature of that conversation is. And that's the same thing we have here with the letter to the Colossians. We have Paul's side of the conversation without hearing the message that Epaphras had brought to him in the first place. So the exact nature of this false teaching uh, was somewhat unclear, but it is clear by Paul's response in the letter that it was some form of heresy that said Christ and or Christ plus something is what you need. It was a teaching that was insinuating that Christ was not sufficient on his own merit and something else was needed for these believers to reach the fullness that God had for them. Some reasonable ideas regarding the nature of this false teaching are derived from chapter 2. And if you look at chapter 2 and verse 8 with me, chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it, Colossians, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Then continue down in verse 16 of chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." We see in these verses that the Colossians were confronted with a teaching that was Christ plus the wisdom and philosophy of men. Christ plus human traditions. Christ plus keeping festivals and ordinances. Christ plus human precepts and teachings. Christ plus aestheticism. Christ plus visions and the worship of angels. Whatever the teaching may have been, Paul replies back to the Colossians to have nothing of it. And instead, to remember that Christ alone is preeminent. And it is through Christ alone that reconciliation and redemption come. There's nothing else that's needed. Friends, this is no different than what we're faced today with out there in the world. And this letter is just as instructive for us today as it was to the Colossians 2,000 years ago. In the face of this false teaching, Paul's drive and sincere desire in this letter is to see the Colossian church brought to full maturity in Christ. We see his desire for their maturity in chapter 1 and verse 9. Look at it with me. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, And so, 
From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Colossians, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He continues this thought in verse 23 of the same chapter, where he tells them that he wants them to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel of which they had heard. Then in verse 28 of chapter 1, he states his reasoning very clearly. He says, it's him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul's firm and passionate desire was that they not be sidetracked by false teaching, but instead that they would grow to maturity, filled with all the fullness of Christ. So that then is our background, which will set the stage for our exposition this morning. Paul's aim was to make much of Christ, to highlight the realities of redemption, reconciliation, also to combat false teaching, and to encourage this little church toward full maturity in Christ. So now that we're oriented, let's turn back again to chapter 1 and verse 1, and let's look at the text together. The title of our message this morning is A Church Worthy of Thanksgiving. And this passage breaks down simply into three parts. Uh, if you want to have a basic outline, some bullet points to hang our thoughts on. First, we're going to look at an apostolic greeting in verses 1 and 2. Next, we'll look at Paul's thanksgiving for a healthy church in verses 3 through 6. And finally, we'll look at a faithful minister in Christ in verses 7 and 8. So we have an apostolic greeting in verses 1 and 2, thanksgiving for a healthy church in verses 3 through 6, and then finally a faithful minister of Christ in verses 7 and 8. So first, let's look at an apostolic greeting in verse 1 and 2. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. This letter begins by identifying the author, Paul, an apostle. And not just merely an apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. And not just an apostle of Jesus Christ, but an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's easy to pass by this introduction without and miss the significance of what's being communicated to us here. An apostle in this sense was a delegate, a messenger sent with orders. And here Paul is referring to himself as an apostle. In this sense, he's declaring that he's been commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. We're likely all familiar with the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, where he set out to persecute those who followed the way, those that were Christians. And he was met by Christ himself and was radically transformed from a persecutor to a believer from a persecutor to a follower of Christ. And it was at this time that Paul received his commission from the Lord directly. 
In Acts 9, verse 15, the Lord said about Paul that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. It was Jesus who called and commissioned Paul to the office of apostle. Paul knew that this role was not by his choice, not by his will, and that's why he opens this letter by saying he's an apostle of Christ, not by his will, but by the will of God. In Galatians chapter 1, in verse 11 through 17, Paul explains his apostleship most clearly. And let's look at that together. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 says, For I would have you know, brothers, this is Paul speaking, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. From these verses in Galatians, we see that Paul was called to the role of of an apostle by God himself through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul acknowledged that God had set him apart before he was born for the task of preaching Christ among the Gentiles. This was not Paul's plan again, but this was God's plan for him. Therefore, when Paul introduces himself as an apostle in this sense, he's invoking the authority of the one who sent him and called him, Jesus Christ himself. Paul, as an apostle and a delegate of Christ, is speaking to the church at Colossae with the full weight of Jesus Christ behind him. Now, back in Colossians, uh, we notice secondly in this verse that Paul identifies as co-laborer Timothy, identified as our brother. We know that Timothy spent much time with Paul in the ministry of the gospel, and Timothy is mentioned here in the introduction of this letter, as well as the letters to the Thessalonians, Philippians, Philemon, and 2 Corinthians also. Timothy's name mentioned here doesn't indicate that he was a co-author of this letter because we'll see the singular pronoun I used throughout the rest of the letter referring to Paul. The mention of Timothy in the opening of this letter has more to do with the fact that Timothy shares in the ministry of Paul on a more permanent and final basis as a faithful co-laborer with Paul. Timothy doesn't share in the apostolic office with Paul, but he's affectionately referred to here as Timothy, our brother, a faithful co-laborer with Paul in the gospel ministry. Verse 1 tells us the author, and verse 2 brings us again to the recipients, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Here, the recipients are identified as saints, those who are believers and set apart by God and make up the church at Colossae. And not just saints, but faithful brothers in Christ. The Greek word translated here as brothers could just as easily be translated brothers and sisters, and you likely have a footnote in your Bible saying the same. The Greek word is adelphoi, and it was a common word used in the ancient world to signify a close and a familial relationship. 
This is another word used commonly in the New Testament. If we move too fast, we can miss what's being communicated to us here. This greeting signified that the recipients were members together of the same family and therefore should regard one another with family unity. The church family should be a second home for those who believe in Christ. For us here this morning, it's no different. We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ because that's what we are, members together of the household of God. As a reminder for us, let's remember the weight of those words, brother, sister, and remember the high regard with which we're supposed to have for one another within the body of Christ. More importantly than merely being brothers and sisters, we need to take note of the significance that Paul was addressing them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church was physically located in Colossae, but more importantly, they were spiritually located in Christ. The phrase in Christ is one of Paul's favorites to use, and it occurs more than 80 times in Paul's letters. And if you remember from our reading in Ephesians this morning, we heard it 10 times in just those opening 14 verses. The significance of this phrase is to speak of the newness of life that the church has in Christ. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were spiritually located, spiritually located in Adam. But God has moved us by his rich grace and mercy, made us together with Christ. We once were located in Adam, now we're located in Christ. We've transferred from death to life, from judgment to grace, from being in Adam to being in Christ. The thought of being in Christ is developed more fully just a few verses later in verses 13 and 14 where we read that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's ours in Christ. Brothers, sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever we are physically located, whether it's here at Pacific Hope, whether it's down in South America, whether it's in Africa, whether it's all the way around the world, where the ruins of Colossae are, wherever we are physically located, what's most important is that we are spiritually located in Christ. So in these first two verses, we have the author, we have the recipients, but lastly, we also have the common apostolic greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This greeting of grace and peace appears in all 13 of Paul's New Testament letters. And once again, it's important that we don't rush past this and miss the significance that's here for us. The Colossian church was likely made up of both Jews and Greeks together, Jews and Gentiles together. And Paul's greeting, as was his standard, addressed both groups at once. The word grace is a form of a similar sounding common Greek salutation that would have been rendered greetings but Paul intentionally modifies the word as grace, saying grace, greetings to the Greeks. The word peace, in contrast, is derived from a very common Hebrew greeting of shalom. That means peace, and more specifically, peace with God. So Paul is thereby addressing both Greeks and Hebrews in a unique way, but putting these two greetings together is more than simply stylistic. Grace is the unmerited favor that we've received from God in Christ, and that leads us to peace with him. Apart from God's grace, there is simply no peace with him. 
Having these two elements together here in the greeting calls the readers to remember that they have received grace, the very wellspring of all mercies and peace, the crown of all blessings. This is the theology of Paul in Romans 5.1 that says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his grace, we have peace. And therefore, grace and peace from God our Father. One last side note on this verse before we move along in our text. The greeting of grace and peace exists in all 13 of Paul's letters, as I mentioned. But the introduction to Colossians is unique in that it ends with God our Father. Everywhere else where we see this, uh, this greeting, we see grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I did quite a bit of reading and research on quite a few commentaries to try to find out why this was so and why this here was unique. And most commentators believe it's just a simple variation and there's nothing to it. Paul's greeting also in verse 3 repeats with the wording, but also includes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's likely simply just a stylistic difference. So uh, for us, if we can just remember, next time perhaps you're playing Bible trivia, you know that it's Colossians where the introduction is just slightly different. So keep that in mind. So there we have the apostolic greeting in verse 1 and 2, and now we'll move on to the heart of the passage, which is Paul's thanksgiving for a healthy church in verses 3 through 6. In these verses, we'll see that the thanksgiving for this church was centered around the fruits of the gospel that were evident in the church at Colossae. As a church, they were marked by the central realities that mark all true Christian healthy churches. They had a living faith that was being worked out in a love for one another. And both their faith and love were firmly grounded in the hope laid up for them in heaven. And because faith, hope, and love were present, the gospel was bearing fruit and multiplying. So right away, let's look at uh, verse 3 together as we see this. Uh, verse 3 says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Right away, we notice here that Paul's thanksgiving is not to the church, but rather it's to God. Paul is not thankful, for, thankful to the church for their obedience and their Christ-likeness. Rather, he's thankful to the one who has made them this way. Just as Paul acknowledged God's sovereignty in his call to apostleship, remember verse 1, an apostle by the will of God, he immediately acknowledges the work in the church, the health of this Colossian church, is due to God. It's an acknowledgement that all these virtues that Paul is grateful for are not manufactured by man, but they come as a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 reminds us that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As we see these marks of a healthy church in our own church body, may we be thankful to God for them. Amen? So next we notice in verse 3 that Paul is always thankful for the Colossian church. Now, this expression doesn't mean that Paul was constantly interceding for this church. It means that every time he prays, he remembers the Colossian church and thanks God for them. It is to say, whenever he prays, he always prays for the Colossians. And again, Paul's dedication to pray for them is remarkable given the fact that he had never met them. Yet he remained faithful to pray for them. Lastly, we see in verse 3 that it is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that is called to our attention for thanksgiving. 
the letter to the Colossians is so heavily Christ-centered. Here in the beginning, we're drawn back to the Father in remembrance that the work of Christ can't be rightly understood apart from the Father. As this letter highlights the person and work of Christ, Paul is reminding his readers that it's the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are the object of our worship. Next, we come to verse 4 and 5, where we get to the specifics of Paul's grounds for thankfulness. Let's look at verse 4 and 5 together. He prays for them, since he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The three main points of focus in these verses are faith, and that is a faith that is in Christ Jesus. And secondly, love, and that's a love that is shown to all the saints. And finally, a hope, and that's a hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Right here in these verses, we're given what, we, what could be considered as apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. Faith, hope, and love. And we see that the Colossians' faith and love were, were a result, that is, because of the hope that they had. Faith and love spring out of a heart that is set on hope. It was the Colossians' firmly grounded hope that led them to live a life of faith and love. And just as hope is the foundation for their faith and love, we're going to begin a review of these verses with an explanation of the hope that was theirs and the hope that is ours also today. The commentator Douglas Moo states that hope, in this sense, is the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. Let me read that again. Hope, in this sense, is the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. These blessings include peace with God, eternal life in the very presence of God, an inheritance with the saints in glory, a new heaven and a new earth, and also the absence of sin and death forever. It is the gospel message itself that declares to us, as it declared to the Colossians, that we have hope beyond the difficulties, the trials, the sufferings we face in this life. The weight of our sin will be removed in Christ. The brokenness of this world in which we live will be made new and whole again, it is certain. All these things are all certain because of the work of Christ, and that is the basis of our hope now as we live in this world. Paul elaborates on this thought very clearly in Romans chapter 8, and in verse 18 through 25, let's look at it together. Romans 8 verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, just as the Colossians did, 
We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, brothers and sisters, in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We live in a fallen world, and the evidence of the fall are all around us. We don't have to look any farther than our own sinful hearts to see the fallenness of this world. We live in a world of suffering, difficulty, trial, death. But God has promised that in Christ, he will make all things new. We will have glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. And as Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is our hope. Those who trust in Christ now in this present age have this blessed hope to look forward to and may we not forget it. Back in Colossians, we see also in verse 5 that the hope that they had was laid up for us in heaven. The significance here is that it's a hope that again is certain. Just as certain as God has promised, this hope is ours. Now, hope that is certain is is uh, not a hope as something that we might perhaps wish for. You may think of someone saying, well, I hope I get a raise at work, or uh, I hope I don't get sick this season, or I hope I can afford to take a vacation this summer. Now, hope in that sense is just a desire that something may or may not happen. But on the contrary, biblical hope is a hope that is certain. It's a joyful and confident expectation that what God has said, he will do. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, which sums this up perfectly for us. And as we read it this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, here it is again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, by God's power, are being guarded through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our hope is a living hope. It's a hope that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept or laid up for us in heaven. It's not ours to maintain. It's not ours to keep. It's God's to keep for us. This type of hope gives Christians a distinct perspective on life. The Christian should be willing to make sacrifices of comfort, of satisfaction, of pleasure in this life, knowing that our true reward is in heaven. Jim Elliott, the well-known martyr and evangelist to remote tribes in Ecuador, uh, he famously said this, and I quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Because of the living hope he had, Jim Elliot gave his life while proclaiming the gospel. And he's now in possession of the inheritance for which we eagerly await. He gave up his life, which was not his to keep, and he gained the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that was kept for him in heaven. This is the same attitude that Moses had, and that's recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. Look at it with me. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting 
pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses refused the earthly pleasures of Egypt, the comfort, the wealth, all the benefits of being named in the name of Pharaoh's household. He put that all aside. He left it all for the greater wealth, the hope that was his in Christ, the hope that we're discussing this morning. We'll likely not become martyrs for our faith as Jim Elliot was, and we may never be called to sacrifice great worldly wealth and comfort as Moses was, but the truth is that this hope should manifest itself now in the way that we live. It should manifest itself in the priorities that we make. It should be a primary consideration in the path in life that we take. You've heard it said that sometimes Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. You've heard that. For the Christian, it should be exactly the opposite. Because we are so heavenly minded, we should be of great earthly good to God's church and his people. So this is the hope that Paul recognized and was thankful for in the Colossian church. And it's the hope that we should also rejoice in today. Now, from the foundation of this hope that the Colossians had came the other primary Christian virtues of faith and love. First, let's look at the faith the Colossians had. Faith, by definition, means to be persuaded that something is true and therefore to put your trust in it. Faith is analogous to believing and has been aptly described by several commentators as that which you lean your whole weight upon. The Colossians had leaned their whole weight upon Christ, putting their faith in him as the author and the finisher of their salvation. The gospel message was the foundation of what the Colossians believed and had put their faith in, and it's also the foundation of what we believe and put our faith in here this morning. As Hebrews 11.1 1 instructs us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Assurance and conviction of the certainty of the hope that we have. We have faith that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. We have faith that his grace alone is sufficient to cover all our sins and make us holy before our God and Father. We have faith that the promises of God of a new heaven and a new earth will someday be realized when he returns in glory. We have faith in knowing that he will do away with sin and death forever. We have faith that when we die, we'll be with him forever in glory. This is the faith that the Colossians shared, and this is what caused Paul to rejoice in thanksgiving. And a faith like this is a cause for celebration and thanksgiving today as well. The Colossians' faith, as well as our faith, is the full assurance, the certainty of the hope that we have. And this faith is a faith that is in Christ who saves us. It is a faith that causes us to lean our whole weight upon Christ, knowing that he alone can save us and deliver us from the domain of darkness and make us heirs together with him in glory. One last comment here regarding faith. When we see these three virtues mentioned together, faith, hope, and love, it's always faith that is mentioned first. And that's a reminder to us that uh, faith is the foundation for the Christian experience. Apart from faith, there is no Christianity. As Romans 10, 17 states very clearly, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is faith in the word of Christ that is our foundation. So we've looked at hope 
which produces faith, but this hope also produces love as it did among the Colossian church. Now, it's not a general love, but a specific love. And as verse 4 says, it's a love for all the saints. And just as there's no such thing as a Christian apart from faith, there's no such thing as a Christian who does not love. There are several different kinds of love described for us in Scripture. The love in view here in Colossians is from the Greek word agape, which you are all most likely familiar. Agape love is a love of affection of goodwill, of benevolence, of brotherly love. It's a love that is best seen in action and not in feeling. Agape love is a love that serves out of a desire to benefit others. According to the scriptures, this type of love is one of the most visible fruits of true saving faith in a believer. Listen to Jesus' words in John 13, 35. He told his disciples, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have agape, love for one another. Love should be evident within the Christian church. But it shouldn't just be evident within the church. It should also be evident to a watching world outside that sees us. We should pause here to note that the target of the church love was all the saints. Now, all the saints in this context simply means Christians. It was in reference to all the Christians whom the Colossians had been in contact with. Everyone who had come to visit the Colossian church, all those members of the churches within the Lycus Valley. Saints here does not refer to a separate class of Christians that are somehow more holy and morally upright than the rest, but rather it's synonymous with Christian. Saints. Christians. The love that the Colossian church had was also a love that is commanded of every Christian. We read in Galatians 5, verse 13, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in just one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There Paul was quoting Jesus. When the scribe asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He was trying to trap him. Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and... Agape, love your neighbor as yourself. Later in Galatians 5, Paul also lists love, agape, as the first of the fruits of the Spirit. And it's this type of love that was abiding in the Colossian church that gave Paul cause to rejoice in thankfulness. So there we have faith, love, and hope. A hope that's laid up for us in heaven that results in a life of faith and love. These were the qualities that Paul was thankful for in the Colossian church, and they're qualities we ourselves should look for and encourage here at Pacific Hope Church as well. One more thing to note here as we look at the reasons for Paul's thankfulness to the Colossian church, and that comes at the end of verse 5 and in verse 6, where we read uh, of the hope laid up for them in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel message that the Colossians had received was not stagnant. Rather, it was bearing fruit and multiplying among the Colossians and throughout the whole world. J.B. Lightfoot, the commentator, says of this verse, and I quote, the gospel is essentially a reproductive organism, a plant whose seed is in itself. Another mark of a healthy church that Paul was thankful for here is that the gospel was bearing fruit and multiplying among the Colossian church. 
The message of salvation that they had received multiplied from Paul to Epaphras, to the Colossians, to the Laodiceans, to those in Hierapolis, to everyone in the Lycus Valley. That message received nearly 2,000 years ago has multiplied all the way here to us this morning. The message was received and it was spreading. The bearing fruit and multiplying here was twofold. Now first, the fruit of the gospel is shown in the Colossian church by the internal transformation of the believers that were there. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, and this living and active word, the word of the gospel, uh, was at work within this church in those individual believers as they were growing to maturity in Christ. It grew in a matter of faith and a matter of love shown for all the saints. Now, secondarily, the church was bearing fruit and multiplying through external growth of the church and new converts. We learn from the parable of the sower that when the gospel goes out and finds good soil, as it had found in Colossae, it can grow, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes 100-fold, and that was happening here in the Colossian church. Such was the cause in Colossae, and it was the case for thanksgiving and celebration from Paul, and it should be for us as well as we see believers grow into maturity and the church grow. As a side note, there's an interesting parallel here, and it's probably a whole other sermon, so I'm just going to touch on it. There's an interesting parallel that we shouldn't miss. In creation, in Genesis, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, his charge to them was to be fruitful and multiply. In God's original creation, humans were to physically bear fruit and multiply to spread God's people throughout the earth. Now, in parallel, God's new creation, the church, would also bear fruit and multiply spiritually as the gospel goes forth and new converts come to Christ. So we have the original creation, man charged with bearing fruit and multiplying, and the new creation again, we're to bear fruit and spiritually multiply. That's interesting, yes? Another thing we see here in verse 6 is that the gospel message was not only bearing fruit in Colossae and the Lycus Valley, but indeed in the whole world, as Paul said. When this letter was written, the gospel had already spread through most of the Roman Empire. It had spread from Jerusalem to Syria to Asia Minor, where Colossae was, to Greece, to Italy, to Egypt, to North Africa, and to Persia by this time. The gospel going forth throughout all the Roman Empire was a foreshadowing of the gospel going out throughout the entire world. And as Paul puts it in verse 23 of the same chapter, the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The gospel to the world speaks of the message as being universal. It was indeed good news for the whole world. The gospel message transcends all ethnic, geographic, economic, cultural, and political boundaries. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And that light that was for the world was for the whole world, not just Israel, not just these folks here, the whole world. The same gospel message that had come to the Colossians has come to us today. The gospel message that we take in our communities is the same message we would bring if we went to South America, if we went to Africa, if we went around the world. The gospel message is the same. It's universal and it transcends all human boundaries. As Paul is thankful here, he's also reminding his readers at the end of verse 6 that it is this message that they heard and understood before. That is the message that is truth, the truthfulness of the gospel attested by the fruit that it bears and the length that it spreads. Paul wanted them to be reminded of this truth as they were confronted again, remember, with false teaching. It's the universal gospel message that bears fruit and multiplies. And that is the message that they had heard and understood and should cling to in light of the false teaching that was present. 
One last note on verses five through seven before we move on. We see that the word truth appears twice. First in verse five, where we read that uh, the word of truth, that is the gospel. And then again in verse seven, we read that the Colossians had understood the grace of God in truth. Remember that the focus of this letter to the Colossians was to combat false teaching. So the emphasis on truth given here is a reminder to the Colossians of the gospel that they had received in truth. And the gospel truth was the counterpunch to that false teaching that was making its way into the church. So far, we've seen the apostolic greeting in verses 1 and 2, and we've seen Paul's thanksgiving for a healthy church in verses 3 through 6. Now we're going to conclude with a look at a faithful minister in Christ in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7 with me. Uh, they had received the grace in God and truth, verse 7 says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 7 tells us that the Colossians learned the gospel, the grace of God and truth, from Epaphras. As we talked about at the beginning of this message, Epaphras likely heard the gospel message from Paul in Ephesus and then subsequently brought the message to his hometown of Colossae and then to everywhere, all the cities situated within the Lycus Valley. It bore fruit and multiplied. Now the word learned here indicates more than just a simple gospel presentation. The Greek word for learned closely aligns with the word discipled and gives a sense of a systematic instruction in the faith. Epaphras had not only evangelized the Colossians, but he also instructed them in, in the scriptures and taught them how to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Next, Paul refers to Epaphras as a beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. We see that Epaphras in this passage was dear to Paul and had been faithful to carry out the duties of an evangelist and a minister among the Colossian church, and according to chapter 4, also in Hierapolis and Laodicea. When I read about Epaphras, I can't help but think of Paul's instruction to Timothy. When he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, he charges Timothy, take what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Is this not Epaphras? Paul had obviously practiced what he preached with Epaphras. Paul had entrusted the message of the gospel to Epaphras, who had taken it to Colossae and faithfully taught it to others. What a fantastic model of Christian discipleship for us today. Paul's commendation of Epaphras was likely an endorsement of his ministry in the Colossian church. Now, with the false teaching that had come in, Paul was assuring the Colossians that Epaphras was a faithful minister and he was indeed aligned with the apostolic message of Paul. Now, since Paul had likely never visited this church, Epaphras was the message bearer to the church with the full support of the Apostle Paul. And here in the beginning of the letter, Paul is quick to give his endorsement of Epaphras and his message over and against the false teaching that had made its way into the church. So Paul opens this letter with an endorsement of Epaphras. He also closes the letter in the same way. Turn with me to chapter 4 and look at verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12, Paul concludes by saying, Epaphras, who is one of you, that is a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
This brings me back to Paul's words in Colossians 1.28 in the beginning where he said, it's Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's desire was that the church would grow to maturity in Christ and here those words are, ep- are echoed about the faithful minister Epaphras. Paul and Epaphras were of one mind about the gospel and Paul wanted to be very clear that the church knew this. One more note about Epaphras as a faithful minister. Verse 7 says that he's a faithful minister on your behalf. Now, some manuscripts say he's a faithful minister on our behalf, and you may have a footnote about that in your Bible as well. But regardless of whether it was originally you or our, it's true either way. Epaphras was a faithful gospel messenger on behalf of the apostles, but also he was a faithful minister to the Colossians on their behalf. Epaphras was a faithful minister either way we look at it. May the same be said for us as we discharge the work of the ministry that God has given us to do. So we're going to conclude this morning right where we started. At a fundamental level, what are the components that make up a healthy and God-glorifying church? How would we sum that up in just one sentence? We would do it just like the Apostle Paul did. It's a church like the church at Colossae that was rooted in hope and therefore lived a life of faith in Christ and lived a life of love to all the saints of the Lord. And may we do the same as we seek to glorify our God and Father together. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word and its truthfulness. We thank you for the foundation of hope we have of all that is ours in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that that hope is not ours to keep, but it's yours to keep for us. We thank you, Lord, that you work in us both faith and love to bring about your good pleasure within us. And we pray for our church here that you would bless us and strengthen us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts in this message that we would know the depth and the richness of the hope that we have in Christ. May we live lives of faith, leaning our whole weight upon you as our Savior. And Lord, may we love, love as Christ called us to love. May we love one another and may it be evident within our body here. Father, thank you once again for your word and its truths. And I pray that you would bless it to us, your people, this morning, we pray. In Christ's magnificent name, amen.